Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. And I'm happy to welcome you to our last podcast of 2019, which is also the second episode of In Their Own Words, our new oral history series. This episode is with Dr. Kent Holsinger, Board of Trustees Distinguished Professor of Biology in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Connecticut. And he's also a past president of the American Institute of Biological Sciences. If you're interested, you can read along with the text version in the pages of Bioscience. But for now, let's go to the interview. Uh, so Dr. Holsinger, thank you very much for joining me today. Happy to be here. Okay, so the first question is, when did you first know that you wanted to work in the life sciences? So it's hard for me to remember when I first knew I wanted to work. I, I've been interested in life sciences since at least grade school. And if I had to identify when I knew I wanted to work in life sciences in some sense, it was probably my sophomore or junior year in high school. And was there anything particularly that appealed at that time? Uh, well, it's just, I, I grew up in a small town in rural southern Idaho, so I spent a lot of time outdoors, fishing, hiking, and so on. And so i just always been interested in being outdoors, and and I was interested in some kind of work that would allow me to continue to, to continue that interest. What would you say is the biggest surprise of your career? So I think it, it depends on where I where you start thinking about a career starting, or when you were thinking about a career. And so, the, if you start from when I was in college and pretty clearly focused on some kind of a career in life sciences. I, the biggest surprise is that I ended up at a big university on the East Coast because I'd always imagined myself going back to a small liberal arts college similar to the one I went as an undergraduate. Um, if you think a, a little later than that, after I was, sort of was in graduate school and and then maybe you know even as a starting assistant professor here at the University of Connecticut, the biggest surprise is that I'm now a dean. How has that been a surprise? Well, because it's not something I ever envisioned that want, wanting to do or, or being asked to do, it because I think like many people who start out on a, on a research track, especially in, in life sciences, the, you see the people on the admin, uh, who are in administration as you know, deans and provosts and presidents as being on the dark side, and you never want to become one of those people. It sounds like it's potentially far cry from, you know, outdoors in the wilderness of Idaho. It definitely is. I've managed to keep, you know, since becoming the dean a little over seven years ago, I've managed to keep some research going and I've managed to get away three or four times for a few uh, weeks of field work in South Africa. But most of my time is sitting behind a desk uh, answering emails or in meetings dealing with dealing with uh, administrative issues at the university. But is that fulfilling in its own way? Oh yeah, it's it's definitely if it if it weren't I wouldn't continue doing it. It's it's um it's a contribution of a different sort because instead of as a as an individual faculty member I'm able to have a a large impact on the on the the small group of graduate students who I have had the privilege of working with directly or you know larger groups that I teach. But as dean of the graduate school, the the things I'm working on have an impact on 7,000 enrolled graduate students at the University of Connecticut. And so that's that's very satisfying. What would you say is the biggest difference between the way science is conducted now versus the way it was when you first entered the field? 
Well, so I think the the one one difference that's enormous that affects all science is the internet because I got my PhD in 1982. ARPANET existed, but at least in my in life sciences that I knew, nobody even knew it existed. When, and you know, when I got to UConn, we were on BitNet. The internet was in its infancy. Almost no one ever used email, much less anything having to do with a World Wide Web or anything like that. And so now, with, with the internet, email, Skype, Zoom, uh, whatever, it's it's just the communicate ability to communicate with colleagues all around the world virtually instantaneously is just a game changer. Because, like for collaborations with people in South Africa, we can just set up a a conference call on Skype or and and talk about issues we're interested in real time as opposed to sending a letter waiting for a week for it to come back and so on or trying to do it over the phone. So that's one one and then a little bit more focused on biology, the genomics revolution in the la- especially in the last 10 years with the high throughput sequencing uh it's just it's a game changer in terms of what it's possible to look at with respect to genetic variation in non-model organisms in particular. And I'll ask a very unfair question, but which do you think if, of those two is the bigger deal? And I ask that largely because you know communications is something that is an incredible revolution, but it's not something that's frequently cited when um, scientists talk about technological advances. I, you know, hmm, that's tough. I guess I would say overall the I, I guess it depends here's how I'm going to say it it's hard I can't really say one is more important than the other they're important in different ways the internet is important for the process of how we actually get science done uh it's it's just made collaboration facilitated collaborations and communications and sh- facilitated communication on a scale that just wasn't imaginable when I was in graduate school. Um, and so that's changed sort of the way in which we do science. The The genomics revolution has changed the content of what we do. So that it, it allows us now to ask and to answer a whole host of questions that we could barely imagine uh, even asking when I was in graduate school. That's a, that's a very good answer to a very unfair question. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, so how have professional societies played any, a role in your career? Uh, and, you know, what's kind of the biggest single event, if you had to name one? I, so I can't really think of a, a single event, per se. But, but professional societies have been an important part of my professional careers since the beginning. I mean, for one thing, one, in, one big way in which the world has changed is... When when I was in graduate school, um, although I would you know I was at St- I was at Stanford, and so we had a very good library. Nonetheless, you know if you wanted to read what was going on in your field, the the sort of typical way you would do that you would get access to the literature is you became a member of, in my case, the Society for the Study of Evolution or the Botanical Society of America or the Genetic Society of America, and you'd get the their journals monthly or quarterly or or bi-monthly and and you'd sort of know what was going on and so the and so you'd you'd read those journals that's what if you look at my cv i don't know what percentage but a very large fraction of the papers i've published over my career have been in society sponsored journals like evolution ajb 
ecology, bioscience, and, and that sort of mix of things. Um, and then also the, the annual meetings that most professional societies sponsor are an incredibly important place to, to sort of share work before it's quite ready for publication, to find out what other people are up to, and to have some face-to-face -face connections with people who are working in your discipline often doing things that are much more closely related to what you're up to than other colleagues in your home departments, and so to share expertise. What would you say is the most challenging day that you've had on the job? Probably the most, it's sort of challenging and disappointing as well. I, sort of, I don't remember the exact year, but I remember the, the feeling pretty well. It was, I had been here at the University of Connecticut maybe two or three years, so I was still a pretty new assistant professor, and I had just put in a proposal to the net, to NIH for the second time. So it had been declined the first time, um, but it had gotten sort of okay reviews. And I spent a lot of time working on the revisions, really felt good about it, turned it in. And in those days, you got the, you got the, the results on a, on a pink sheet in the mail. And the pink sheet came back, and not only was it declined, but it got a much lower priority score than the first time around. And I just remember, go, you know, driving home that night, and it's just this, you know, like a, somebody punched me in the gut because you just put so much of it into yourself and then uh, in, into it, and then to have the reaction be that this isn't even as good as what they had seen before was really tough to take. That sounds difficult. Did you uh, did you then abandon that project, or did it uh, you know kind of come back in a different form? No, actually, that one I did end up abandoning because it was not, it wasn't really. It was something I was interested in, but it wasn't really central to, to what I was interested in, and and it was a uh, on the edge of of my expertise and interest, and so I just decided, forget it. I'm going to just drop that and not do it anymore. It sounds like some ways, sometimes that's a good way to bounce back. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and it's not like, I, so I, and I say that's, that's probably the worst day, but it's not like the same thing hasn't happened again. It's just that I'm used to it now. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, what would you say is your best day on the job? It's, well, so it's really hard to pick a best day because, frankly, I feel like I've been very fortunate in career, my career and I've had a lot of good days. But one that I remember, and this is actually one that happened after I became dean, and it involves research, was in the first year of a big collaborative project that we had through the Dimensions of Biodiversity program at NSF, um, there, there was a group of about a, a dozen or 15 of us from UConn who spent five weeks in the Cape region of South Africa collecting samples and data for, for later analysis. And one day in particular, I remember um, with, with my postdoc and, uh, and one undergraduate and a, and a, and a, and a graduate student hiking uh, about a thousand meters up uh, a, a, a Jeep trail to collect samples in Babianskloof, which is a really isolated but beautiful part of the of the Eastern Cape Province, and it's standing at the top of this ridge, looking over the looking over the Karoo uh, on a beautiful, clear, sunny day. It was just like, wow, this is why I became a biologist. And sticking with the positives, what's a favorite memory from your time working with the IBS? 
Yeah, so I don't have a story per se, but I remember one, I, got, I think my favorite time in, in, in AIBS was the, there was a president's conference in, I think it was 1999 at Airly in, in, in um, just outside of the, uh, DC in the, in Northern Virginia in the horse country there. And it was, a, and the, it was something where virtually all of the presidents of AIBS member societies came to that, to that workshop for, I forget, it was two or maybe three days to sort of think about what's the future of AIBS? What should AIBS be doing? What should it, what should its future be? And it, because at that point in AIBS's history, up until 1995 or 96, one of the main things AIBS had been identified with was organizing big meetings in the summer. And these meetings involved the Ecological Society of America, the Botanical Society of America, and, and a number of smaller societies. And in a, I forget whether it was 95 or 96, was the last of those big meetings and AIBS was sort of was drifting a little bit and it wasn't clear where it was going to go and a number of the things that came out of that meeting in 1999 sort of set the stage for what it did in the next four or five years in the early 2000s and that's also the place where Bio One of which AIBS was a founding member was really getting um, getting off the ground and people were beginning to think about whether that was something that their society would participate in. What would you say is the single funniest thing that's happened in your career? Oh, yeah. So the probably the funniest thing, this was actually on a job interview. Um, when I was interviewed for a position at the University of Toronto, the uh, many, uh, the University of Toronto, at least, and I don't know whether this is true of all Canadian universities, had a had an interview system that's that's sort of like the system they have in Great Britain. In the sense, I mean, it, it's the sort of system we think of in the United States, where you go, you visit, you talk to faculty individually, you you give a departmental seminar, and so on. But they threw in something that's a little British, which is, in addition to that, then at some point, I had a actual interview in a room with the department chair and the search committee sitting around a table in a, in a more classic you know uh, commercial type job interview where they you know people go around the table and ask me questions and I'd respond to those questions and one of the questions had to do with whether I really thought there was a future in understanding the evolution of plant mating systems and is that an area of research that's really important and so in an attempt to talk to, to demonstrate how important it was I was mentioning several very prominent people who were doing this important work and and describing what they were and I was mentioning the institutions where they were one of the people I mentioned was Spencer Barrett who I said was at the University of British Columbia and he was sitting in the room, of course, because he's at the university, which I knew, and I had somebody else in mind, but I said his name. So that that's probably the, it was sort of embarrassing, and I, I didn't get the job. I don't think that's the reason I didn't get the job, because Spencer and I are good friends, but it, that was sort of a funny incident. Yeah, it sounds like it. That must have been a, a terrifying moment. Yeah, it was. Well, as a matter of fact, Spencer was just here for a seminar visit last spring, and he he had great got great pleasure out of telling our graduate students about that incident okay that, that's good uh didn't didn't take it badly um, no 
What event from your career do you think will be the best remembered into the future? You know, I, I, I really can't think. I, I really can't think of any event that I think will be that or anything I did like that that will be long remembered. I think it's it's possible that sort of the some of the scientific contributions I made on evolution of plant mating systems and the role of what's called pollen discounting, some of the work that I've done more recently on uh, statistical methods for describing the distribution of genetic variation among populations, and then some of the stuff I've been doing on empirical work on proteas in the last 10 years, that may have some, some people may remember that for a while, but other than that, I don't, I don't, I can't think of anything, you know, any particular thing I've done that people would remember per se. Okay, fair enough. Um, what are you working on right now? So I'm working on a on a couple of things, and when I say I'm working, what I really mean is is I have students who are working on these things, and I get and I get together with them and talk with them about how their work how their work is going. Um, and so the one set of things I'm working on has to do with the relationship between the the physical or structural traits that plants have, like how thick and heavy their leaves are. Uh, and the, the the physiological functions like photosynthetic rates or rates of water flow through stems, and then ultimately their performance in terms of how many seeds they set, their fecundity, and so on. So that so there's that, and then also how those traits influence or don't competitive effects among species, and that's that's work that one student has been doing in Protea for several years. And then another student who's just, in fact, handing in her dissertation next Thursday and going on to a postdoc has been working in Pelargonium um, looking at the relationship between climate change over the last century in, in southwestern South Africa and the timing of peak flowering in Pelargonium in, across the genus Pelargonium and also looking at how projected climate change over the next 50 to 100 years in South Africa is likely to affect the the geographical distributions of species in the genus. Uh, any early spoilers? Are, are they going to make it? Um, so I don't remember the exact number, but the student who just uh, who I just was talking about in Pelargonium just presented a poster at the Botanical Society meetings. And if I recall correctly, it, it's something like 70 or 80% of the species of Pelargonium are going to see a moderate to substantial range reductions over the next 50 years if the projections hold. Uh, and if you were entering grad school today, um, what would you do differently, if anything? Well, I think, I, I think, first of all, I mean, the world is very different now from when I entered graduate school. And I have a, have a better sense of this since I've been dean of the graduate school now for seven years. So I really understand sort of where things are going in a way I might not if I were a faculty member. But I, I think the, the big difference and I'm not in, in a way it's not a difference, but it's a difference we're aware of now that we weren't when I was in graduate school, is that it's I think anybody who's entering a PhD program in particular needs to be aware that there's a very good chance that although they that they will A, that they will be employed because the unemployment rate for PhDs is really small, but B, that there's a very good chance they will not be employed as a tenure track faculty member at a college or university. They might be employed in some other capacity at college or university, or, but more than half of PhDs are employed outside of colleges and universities. And so I think one of the things I, I, I advise all incoming 
uh, doctoral students especially is to make sure they're aware of the, the the range of careers that the skills you acquire in a PhD program actually prepare you for because they're not just preparing you to be or maybe not even primarily preparing you to be a faculty member they they can pre you might work in a government agency or a nonprofit uh, as a as an editor, as a consultant, or any of a variety of things, and so to really be aware of what the, the that of what your skills are, how those map into a variety of different careers, and what the career options are, so that you actually are well prepared for anything life has to throw at you in the future. Okay, and this and that answer may feed into this one, but uh, if you were entering grad school today, uh, would you study anything different, or and if so, why? I, so I don't think I would. I've been in part because it's. I think one of the challenges I had. It took me a while to actually land a, a, a faculty position. I think one of the reasons is because I had a very wide range of interests. I'd done theoretical population genetics. I'd done um, nomen uh, systematics and nomenclature, and I've done ecology. And so, so I I, I sort of am a, I. I guess I'm sort of a dilettante. I sort of dabble in a, a whole bunch of things, and I probably would continue to do that because it's worked out reasonably well. But t I think the big thing is that anybody who's entering graduate school, especially if they're entering a Ph.D. program uh, where they're going to be there for four, five, maybe six years, you have to, you really have to pick something that you personally love. And what you love is likely to be different from what I love. Uh, and so, because because I've never met anybody who's completed a PhD who didn't hit at least one major obstacle along the way. And if you don't really love what you're doing, you're not going to finish. Well, that's both a great note to leave it on and the end of my questions. Dr. Holsinger, thank you very much for joining me today. Sure thing. Happy to do it. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.